The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, focus, concentrate, put aside the distractions and cares of the day, and take some time to let our souls be refreshed by the Word of God. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to gather together and study your word. And as we look at your word this evening, we pray that we would have the objectivity, the courage to let your word honestly reflect to us the way we are and where we need to change and how we need to have our thinking transformed by the principles in your word. Father, help us to understand these things and how they relate together. And we know that under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, all these things are understandable. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blow up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're beginning a new series, and as I indicated last time at the conclusion of James, I have partially selfish reasons for doing this. That is that in... August, I've been invited to come over to Kazakhstan to teach a group of pastors. Now, what's happened over there is Jim Myers, who's been a missionary over there, first got really got to know Jim. I have vague memories of him when he used to lead singing down at Baraka some um, 30 years ago. But he's been a pastor for a number of years, and he's been a missionary over in Russia for about six years now. He lives in Kiev in Ukraine. And he has uh, done a lot of work over in Kazakhstan, which is in northern Central Asia. You can go home and get your map out. And if you go to uh, about where the Himalayas are and go due north, just before you get to Russia, that's uh, Kazakhstan. We're going to be in Almaty, which used to be the capital. And there's a couple of seminaries there, and there are, um, and I don't know anything about them. But there's a large number of pastors in that area. It's primarily an Islamic country. And there's a large number of pastors there that have just been saved in the last four or five years, since, or maybe seven or eight years now, since everything opened up and the Soviet Union, old Soviet Union broke up. And these guys have very little, if any, formal training. Uh, fortunately, in the last seven or eight years, or since I was even over, I went to Belarus about... Uh, 
five years ago, I guess it was, and taught. And even at that time, there was very little available in their language, but now they've translated Ryrie's basic theology into Russian. They've translated the Dallas Seminary Bible Knowledge Commentary, both Old and New Testaments, into Russian. I think Henry Thiessen's Systematic Theology is now in Russian. So they do have some things that they can look at. When I went over there five years ago, they didn't have anything in their language. So uh, Jim developed the concept of having a month-long Bible institute where they would bring some men, some doctrinal guys over from the U.S. Uh, to teach in one- and two-week blocks of instruction. So George Meisinger, who's the director of uh, Schaefer Theological Seminary, and I are going to be over there the first two weeks of August. Now, Dan will be here. He's going to be up here this summer for two months and next summer for three months doing a pastoral internship. So he has to get some training. So I figure a good way to get him some training, like the old way of teaching a kid how to swim, just throw him in the water. So that's about the kind of procedure Dan's going to get this uh, this summer. He'll be up July and August, so he'll have a couple of weeks when, when uh, I'm here. But most of that time, unfortunately, I'll be gone and he'll just be winging it. But you will be in good hands. And uh, in preparation for what I'm teaching, I'm supposed to teach a course on the spiritual life for two weeks, which is about 30 hours, but half that I teach it. I get, I'll speak a sentence, translator will translate. So that means instead of having 30 hours, I'll have 15 hours. And I want to cover Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, Romans 6 through 8, plus basic concepts doctrinally. So I figure I'm going to cover Romans 6 through 8 in about three hours. Well, in order to synthesize, this is a key concept many people forget in teaching, in order to synthesize something down and present it in a quick, general manner, you have to make sure you've done your homework on all the details and all the analysis. So, just for the sake of time, I don't have time to do a complete analytical exegesis of Romans 6 through 8, plus teach Wednesday night. I'm going to teach, do my, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. And on top of what we've done in Galatians 5, what we've done in James, we're going to sort of cap it off with a study of Romans 6 through 8, which is a crucial section on the spiritual life in the book of Romans. So we will get into that. I've taught portions of this here and there. I've never exegeted through or taught through all of Romans. I got this idea about, I don't know how long ago it was, Ken was telling me, he says, you know, and he may be he may have faulty memory, I'm, and maybe I heard it wrong. He said when Ron was here, he taught through up to he skipped Romans six through eight when he taught Romans, so that wasn't handled. So I thought, well, that's good. Those of you who were here when Ron was here got the rest of it. Now I'll fill in the gap. So we need to start our introduction this evening by focusing on the issues of the spiritual life. Now, spiritual life is how most people talk about the relationship to God if they have some biblical background. The technical term for it is sanctification, specifically progressive sanctification. But before we get into that, we need to say a few things or note a few things about the importance of understanding the spiritual life and the concept of spirituality. Whether you have noticed it or not, and I don't think you would, you'd have to be dead or deaf and blind to uh, not have noticed it, but it seems like one of the key words that has come out of the last decade of the 90s is spirituality. Everybody seems to be talking about 
spirituality, getting in touch with their spiritual side, focusing on the spiritual side of their life. And nobody ever takes the time to define what they mean by spirituality, and it's just become this sort of catch-all phrase. For some people, spirituality relates to ritual, going through certain sorts of, uh, quote, religious activities, church attendance, contemplation, and meditation. That's what they think of when they hear the word spirituality or spiritual life. Other people define spirituality as the veneration of the saints, worship of relics, pilgrimages to shrines, and a priest or some designated mediator functioning in ritualized services. Others equate spirituality with asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that I'm going to give up something and somehow that's going to impress God. This is a great time of year for that. I think Lent started a week or two ago and a lot of people think that uh, they're somehow impressing God with what they're not eating or drinking or smoking or whatever it is that they're giving up. So some folks equate spirituality with asceticism that they'll impress God and through their sincerity you never ever notice how people think that just because they're sincere that somehow God's impressed. It doesn't matter if they might be sincerely wrong. They still think God's impressed. They, they think that somehow through self-denial and self-mortification they will be spiritual. Other people think of spiritual life as nothing more than emotional well-being. I heard that recently. Somebody said, I'm going to pay attention to my spiritual life and struck me in the whole context of what he was saying that what he really meant was he's going to go out and emote a little bit and make sure he's, he's emotionally healthy, whatever that means, like your emotions can be sick. It's amazing. If you stop and think about a lot what the phrases that people use today, you wonder how we have gotten so far away from any kind of truth or anything that has real significance. Other people equate spirituality to morality, some system of morality, whether it's cloaked in the guise of religion or not. Other people think it is withdrawing from the world into some sort of, of mysticism, monasticism, and subjective contemplation. For others, it's nothing more than a quest for self-identity, self-fulfillment, in other words, just another opportunity for emotional self-absorption. So these are all the different concepts that are going around in, in the cosmic system in terms of spirituality. So when you talk about spirituality, and you mention being spiritual or spirituality, you need to be aware that that can mean just about anything to anybody, and it's a very vague concept, especially today. So we need to get into this subject, and we need to look at just what the Scripture says, and we will be going back and forth between the terms spiritual life and sanctification. So let's begin with a few introductory points about the significance of the doctrine of sanctification. Point number one, it is God's will that we are sanctified. It is God's will that we are sanctified. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 states, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there, because of the concept, uh, the context, which is talking about one particular sin in this instant, instance, we know that this is not positional sanctification, but this is experiential sanctification. Now, I will define those terms, but most of you know that positional sanctification is that sanctification we have at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, 
that is ours that sets, apart, sets us apart eternally for the service of God. That experiential sanctification is that process of the spiritual life and our spiritual growth to spiritual maturity. So this is God's will for your life. So if you ever get to the point where you start saying, what is God's will for your life? First of all, it's that you become sanctified, that is, grow to spiritual maturity. Second, we need to realize that all three members of the Trinity are involved in our sanctification. All three members of the Trinity are involved in our sanctification. God the Father is involved in our sanctification according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, which reads, Now may the God of peace Himself, God of peace is a term for God the Father, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sanctified by God the Son, Ephesians 5.26 states, so that He, that is, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, might sanctify her, the church, in context, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. For both, And then in Hebrews 2.11, for both He who sanctifies, that is, in context, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who are sanctified, that is, believers, are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. So there we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is involved in our sanctification. You might also look at Hebrews 9, verse 12 and 14, which states, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the, early, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So there we have the issue that Jesus Christ is involved in our sanctification. And then in um, Hebrews 13:12 we read, Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, and of course you know that that is a figurative reference to the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, the spiritual substitutionary atonement, that He might sanctify the people through His own spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, suffered outside the gate. So that was part of His purpose in our salvation is to bring us to ultimate sanctification. And then we have in Romans fifteen sixteen a reference to the Holy Spirit. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So that in terms of our spiritual service here, it's talking about Paul's ministry to the Gentiles as an apostle, that that would be set apart, in other words, as divine good, by means of God the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by means of the Spirit and faith in the truth. And there we have the two elements that are necessary for sanctification, as we will see again and again, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit and doctrinal orientation. We have to take in the Word of God. They work together. It, is, it functions in tandem. We can't separate the Spirit from the Word of God. We can't separate the Word from the Spirit. I think those who emphasize the Spirit and leave out the Word always end up in some kind of mysticism. Because the tendency is to, to take the Spirit 
and make and identify the spiritual leading or the spirit's work with our subjective emotional state. And then, on the other hand, there are those who ignore the spirit and it's and they they just emphasize the word of God, and you either end up in some sort of academic knowledge that has no real impact or value in the life. It's just the accumulation of uh, gnosis instead of epinosis, or it becomes legalism. And it is just an emphasis on nothing more than human morality. So all three members of the Trinity are involved in our sanctification, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then the third point is that our sanctification from God involves four factors. Third point, our sanctification from God involves four factors, and these are, first of all, it is based on the finished substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. This is the foundation of our spiritual life. Because of everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross, we have a spiritual life. Now, one of the things that has impressed me, and I'm going to uh, focus on some... Sunday morning, as well as when I go down to uh, Capitol Seminary on Friday, and that is how significant Christ is to everything in Scripture. We live in an age when people want quick fixes. They want immediate answers. They want, they want to come to church, and they want everything boiled down to five points so that they can go home and they can immediately put something into practice. They don't want to really learn to think and understand the underlying dynamics and rationales uh, behind the behavior. They just want to be told, go do this, this, and this, and then they'll go do that. It's a very simple, superficial, and meaningless approach to Christianity. Ultimately, it reduces Christianity to nothing more than overt behavior, and that is dangerous. The emphasis in Scripture is always to transform my thinking. You change the way you think, you'll change the way you live. But we tend to have this emphasis because people don't want to sit still, and they don't want to listen to somebody talk for hour, hour and 15 minutes about the procession of the Holy Spirit and the filioque clause. They don't see its significance or relevance in their life. So let's just have a 20-minute sermonette for Christianettes. And I went through the passage scripture the other day, and uh, I noticed how many times the scripture gives a very practical, I mean, some of the most practical things that you can think about are human relationships. And some of the biggest problems that we have have to do with mental attitude sins, such as the bitterness and anger and resentment. And you get passages like Ephesians 4, forgive one another just as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You can't understand forgiveness if you don't have a sound Christology. You can't understand marriage, frankly, if you don't have a sound Christology. There's all the, the whole marriage passage in Ephesians 5, husband's role, wife's role, everything's predicated on an understanding of the personal work of Jesus Christ. And yet people don't want to sit still in the pew long enough to get a sound Christology. We have to understand that Christ is the focus, the centerpiece, the foundation of everything in our life. And that we have to understand every aspect in detail. And the amazing thing is that if you are here three or four hours a week learning the Word for the rest of your life and my life, I think that's just going to be a drop in the bucket to what we're going to be learning in all of eternity. There is so much to learn about God. After all, He's infinite and He is eternal. So we have to really focus on these underlying issues so that we can begin to even appreciate 
the mandates in Scripture related to our spiritual life. So our sanctification is, first of all, based on the finished substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Secondly, it's based on our union with Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2 and 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is based on our union, that is, our identification with Christ, which we will study as the doctrine of positional truth and retroactive positional truth. Our union with Christ at the moment of salvation, we are instantly united with Christ, and that can never be rent asunder. Third, our sanctification is based on the Word of God. It is by means of the Word of God. John 17, 17, Jesus Christ is praying to the Father, and He says, Father, sanctify them in truth, Thy Word, or sanctify them by means of truth, Thy Word is truth. And 1 Timothy 4, 5 substantiates that. So it is the Word of God, and then fourth, it is by means of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2, Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the Spirit. And Galatians 3, 3, have you begun by the Spirit and now attempting to be matured by the sin nature? So we can, according to Galatians 3, 3, get caught up in a pseudo-spirituality that emphasizes maybe a lot of biblical principles, overt activity, and maybe some internal mental attitude uh, shifts, but because it's not done in dependence on the Holy Spirit through walking in, through the filling of the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, then it is nothing more than human good and wood, hay, and straw. So it is possible, according to Galatians 3.3, to have a pseudo-spirituality that is engineered and energized by the sin nature. And we have to understand how to avoid that and what the dynamics are. So we've seen three introductory points related to the importance of our sanctification, that that it's God's will for our life. All three members of the Trinity are involved, and God has done everything for our sanctification. Now we need to look at some basic terminology, basic terminology from the Greek and Hebrew, in order to understand the significance of the spiritual life for us. The first word is the Hebrew word kadash. The Hebrew word kadash. And it's usually translated holy. This is just the root word, depending on how you, what vowels you add to it. It can uh, be a noun or a verb or a participle. But we have to look at the root meaning. Now, originally, the Canaanite word, the root Q-D-S-H, kadash, had a basic meaning that was related to their religious ritual. The word came over into Hebrew and, and we read passages such as Exodus 3.5 which says that the ground around the burning bush was holy. That's the basic way in which Kadash is, is translated. It means to be holy. The noun form would be holy or sanctified. Uh, sanctification. All of these words are based on the Hebrew root Kadash. Gilgal, where the Jews set up a, a worship center, uh, according to Joshua 15, was declared to be Kadash, holy. The temple in Isaiah 64.10 is said to be holy. Days are said to be holy in Isaiah 58.13. Offerings are said to be holy in 1 Samuel 21.5-7. And tithes were said to be holy in Deuteronomy 26.13. That obviously indicates, if you look at what is said to be holy, the burning bush, Gilgal, temple, offerings, tithe. None of that can be moral or immoral. So the root concept of Kadash has nothing to do with morality, but it has to do with being set apart to the service 
of a god. In fact, the both the feminine and the masculine nouns of Kadash were used by the Canaanites to refer to the temple prostitutes in the fertility worship. So obviously, this the root concept here does not have anything to do with morality. But that which is set apart to the service of God, that's the root meaning of Kadash. In Greek, the Greek terms all are based on the Hebrew term Kadash. Hagiazo is the verb used 28 times in the New Testament. It's used of things, meaning that they are set aside to the service of God or made suitable for ritual purposes. It also means to consecrate, to dedicate, to sanctify, to treat something as holy, and to set something apart to the service of God. It is used in a number of different passages. Matthew 23:17 and 19, 2 Timothy 2:21, John 17:17 17, 17 and 19, John 10:36 and 1 Thessalonians 5:23. I'll go over those again. Matthew 23:17 and 19, 2 Timothy 2:21, John 17:17 17, 17 and 19, John 10:36 and 1 Thessalonians 5:23 plus a host of other passages. Hagiasmas is the noun. Hagiasmas is the noun. It's used ten times in the New Testament. It's usually translated holiness, consecration, or sanctification. It is used for the process, but often to emphasize its result, the final result of the process, which is the state of being made holy. Now, holy is a word that we've used that in religious circles for so long that it loses a lot of its, its uh, punch. I think a better word to use for us to try to give it a little fresh flavor is integrity. But integrity doesn't really convey the concept of being set apart to the service of God. So, so holy does in that sense, but it doesn't mean pure or right. It's used in Romans 6, 19 and 22, so we will run into that in our opening chapter of our study. It's also used in 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 4, and 7. I'll just give you those references now. Romans 6, 19, and 22. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 4, and 7. Now, another noun that is used is hagiasune. Hagiasune. If you look at that word, it has a suffix sune. Sune has the concept in, in Greek of a quality or an attribute like dikaiosune, which is another critical word in our study. It's the word for righteousness. It's the quality of, of being righteous. This is the quality of being set apart. It's used three times in the New Testament and relates to someone who possesses the attribute of holiness or sanctification. It's used in Romans Romans 1, 4, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, and 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. And in Romans 1, 4, is in contrast to a life of the flesh. Flesh being a technical term for the sin nature. What I'm building there, just by looking at the terminology right there, we see that there is a, this is the contrast between the sanctified life, the set-apart life, and the sin nature that you're living 
in sanctification, then the sin nature is not in control of the life. So we're already seeing the contrast. Another word is hagiotes. Hagiotes is a noun, 2 Corinthians 1, 2 and Hebrews 12, 10, and is usually translated sanctity. Hagiotes. Then there is the adjective hagias, which is used 233 times in the New Testament. Generally, it's used to modify pneuma, which is the Greek for spirit, 94 times, that is, as in the Holy Spirit. It's used to define the, the spirit 94 times, and it's used to refer to believers as saints 61 times. So a saint is not a special category of Christian. A saint is any believer because he has been positionally set apart in Christ. We are all sanctified ones by virtue of our positional sanctification. So every one of you is a saint. Just put saint in front of your name and try not to grin. Now, all of those words are based on the same basic, same root for hagias. And then we shift to a different word, a synonym, hosias. Hosias, H-O-S-I-O-S. That is an adjective and it's translated pure, holy, pious. It's used eight times in the New Testament and it emphasizes the cleansing result of sanctification. That's what comes from application of 1 John 1.9. It's not used in 1 John 1.9, but it uses that, it indicates that, that consequence of having been, having been cleansed. And then another word, the last one in this opening salvo of technical terminology, is eusebeia. Eusebeia. E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A. Used 15 times in the New Testament, and it's usually translated godliness. Now, godliness, like holy, is another one, another one of those words that we use every now and then. We talk about somebody's being so godly, and you wonder, well, what does that really mean? Now, etymologically in English, whenever you see that, L-Y ending or L-I-N-E-S-S. It's the concept of being God-like. So it's God-likeness. That goes back to the old, the old English or Middle English. It's God-likeness. It has a quality of God about it. Well, what are we talking about here? The quality of God is talking about someone who reflects the image and character of Jesus Christ. That's what godliness is. It's somebody who has been transformed by the renewing of their mind so that their character mirrors and is an image of Jesus Christ. In essence, what we're talking about is just the spiritual life and spiritual growth to spiritual maturity. It's behavior that, re- that reflects correct religious beliefs and attitudes, thus meaning the believer's spiritual life. Now, a few conclusions are in order at this point. First of all, Moral perfection is not implied in the term sanctification. This does not mean you're going to be sinless. This does not mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to struggle less with sin. Matter of fact, the more you grow as a believer, the more sensitive you will be to the sin in your life. And so the more uh, apparent it will be. You will become more aware of how sinful you are as you achieve spiritual maturity than you were when you were a spiritual infant because now you're much more aware of all the mental attitude sins that you commit as opposed to the overt sins which you enjoyed. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake. So moral perfection is not implied. No matter how mature you are as a believer, 
You may spend more and more time in fellowship and not in carnality. You may not commit those horrendous, horrible sins, overt sins that you did before, and you may not spend as much time out of fellowship, but you will still struggle with sin and you will never be morally perfect and you're still capable of committing every single sin you could have committed as an unbeliever. And that is the danger. We, that's why we're uh, enjoined and challenged to endure constantly so that we do not grow weary and fall away in reversionism. Secondly, we need to realize that this is not a final status in this life. You will not achieve final sanctification in this life. That was introduced through the uh, horrible heresy of the holiness movement in the middle 19th century, which came out of and developed the Wesleyan doctrine of perfectionism and then gave birth to the holiness Pentecostal movement. One of my favorite quotes in church history, I just love church history, there's always somebody out there who will who will tell things like it is. You know, we live in a society today when everything's got to be politically correct and anybody who comes along and, you know, takes a strong stand or something and states something very clearly and dogmatically is considered uh, insensitive and, and uncaring. And, uh, you know, I just love the quote. It's been attributed to a number of different people, but I think it was Reuben A. Torrey who said that, it, it's been attributed to Barnhouse and Warfield, but I've pushed it back to at least Tory, who said that the charismatic movement is the last vomit of Satan in human history. <laughs> now, he didn't live long enough. There have been a few more since then, but it gives rise to all sorts of distortions, including the concept that you can somehow become sinless or perfect. Not, it's not a final status in this life. All believers are to continue to pursue sanctification until death. You don't get out of the race. You don't get to uh, relax. Just You don't get to retire in the spiritual life. It is an ongoing struggle till death. Spiritual maturity is going to, and rewards are going to be based on what you have at death, not 65. Third, saint, which is used eight times in the Old Testament and 61 times in the New Testament, does not refer to a special class of believers, but any person who is saved, who has a relationship to God as a member of the royal family. People are saints because they are set apart in the plan and purpose of God, not because they have somehow performed some miracles or impressed somebody with their asceticism or some other factor. Every believer is a saint. So that leads us to a couple of points about, in terms of defining sanctification. First of all, sanctification is used of three different stages in the believer's spiritual life. But the primary way that we use it is in this particular uh, study is going to be on progressive or experiential sanctification, the believer's spiritual growth. Now, we are used to this by looking at our diagram of three phases of salvation. Phase one takes place at the cross where we are justified. Phase two is the spiritual life where we grow from spiritual infancy, hopefully, to spiritual maturity. And then phase three, sanctification, we also call glorification when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. So, uh, technical terms are positional sanctification, experiential or progressive sanctification 
and ultimate sanctification. Second, sanctification is a technical term used to describe the spiritual life, which is the process of the believer's growth from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. As the believer matures, he more or as the believer matures, more and more of his life is set apart to the service of God. Now there has to be a little warning here. This is the distortion. Morality is a system of right and wrong based on a number of different factors, including cultural, social, and religious ideals. One of the greatest areas of confusion in Christianity is that morality and spirituality are the same thing. Now, you can't be spiritual and be immoral or amoral. But just because you are moral doesn't mean you are spiritual. That was the problem with the Galatian believers. They were told that they, um, they were advancing, but by means of the flesh. Why? You started well. You started by means of the Spirit. Do you think you're going to complete it by means of the flesh? See, they were obeying the Mosaic Law, which was a system of ethics and a system of morality originally given to the nation Israel. So it's not like the Galatian believers were the, were the carnal reprobates over in Corinth. They were upright, moral citizens trying to impress God and impress one another with their morality, thinking that that was the key to spiritual growth. So we have to understand this distinction. So we define morality as a system of right or wrong based on a number of different factors, including cultural, social, and religious ideals. And they may vary. In a broad sense, morality is pretty much the same. Every culture thinks that murder is wrong, Thievery is wrong. Lying under most circumstances, especially in court, is wrong. Uh, certain forms of criminality are wrong. But uh, some details may vary. For example, in that Peace Child film that you saw, that, that they certainly have a different view of ethics and morality in that culture. So, all, although all ethical systems may agree in the broad sense, they may disagree in, in details, Ethics are not a basis for spirituality. Now, point two, the highest ethical code that man has had is that revealed in the Mosaic Covenant. That's the highest ethical code. It was a legislated code, and it was to govern the nation Israel, which was comprised of both believer and unbeliever. That's something that I don't think I ever heard a single seminary prof emphasize during my entire four years at Dallas was that this is really designed for a nation comprised of, of believers and unbelievers. Therefore, it could not be a system of spirituality because anyone who can do that in the power of the flesh is not necessarily spiritual because they're not even saved. Point number three. Thus, morality in its highest form is designed as a, as a system of ethics for believer and unbeliever alike for the whole human race in order to provide stability in government, in society, and to protect individual freedom, property, and life. That is the function of morality. It is to bring stability into society. It's a reflection of establishment law from the, from the uh, five divine establishments. Uh, establish, divine establishment number one. Divine institution number one is human 
responsibility. Divine institution number two is marriage. Divine institution number three is family. Number four is human government. And number five is the division of nations. So if we look at this, and these are principles that are given in order to provide stability for the divine institutions. Point four, if an unbeliever can produce a moral life that is not based on the Holy Spirit, then it can't be the spiritual life. The point here is that anything an unbeliever can do is therefore not part of the spiritual life. And if an unbeliever can go to church regularly or go through the motions of prayer and memorize Scripture and read the Bible, all of those things and even witness, and I've heard cases where there have been unbelievers who knew something about the Scripture, presented the Gospel, and somebody got saved. I've even heard of pastors who claimed that they weren't saved until later give the Gospel and have people get saved. I don't know if that's really true or not, if they were really unsaved, but that's their testimony. So anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. Point number five, the spiritual life then is a system of ethics and virtue that is based on the work of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and is uniquely dependent upon Him. That is the difference in the church age, that we have a life based on the Holy Spirit. We're to be filled by the Spirit, we're to walk by the Spirit, and according to Galatians 3.3, we are to be completed by means of the Spirit. So it doesn't happen on our own, from our own energy and from the sin nature. Point number six, arrogance distorts morality into a system of works designed to impress God or gain divine approval. I don't care how religious or, quote, humble... Somebody might be, and how much they insist on the fact that they really don't think they impress God with what they do, they've just deceived themselves into thinking that's not really their motivation. That's always there, just like the unbeliever who says God doesn't exist. Scripture says that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and that they know God exists, despite their protestations to the contrary. Same thing with a lot of uh, legalistic, self-righteous, Believers, they do not believe they're trying to impress God, but that's really what they're doing. Point seven. Biblical spirituality is grounded upon the realization that Christ has done everything for us and on the basis of, using three synonyms here, received, imputed, or credited righteousness under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the believer advances to spiritual maturity. So right there we're going to see that if we're, before we get very far into this study, we're going to have to stop and do a study on imputation. Point number eight, therefore, we must distinguish between systems of good works, high ethics and morality, which can be performed by any unbeliever and the unique spiritual life of the believer. We have to distinguish between good works and spiritual life. Anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. Now, with that for introduction, let's go to Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, I really have a hard time doing this. I'm the kind of teacher that I like to start in the first verse and go to the end of the book. And I always have had difficulty just sort of jumping into the middle of an epistle. 
But that's what we're doing here. So in order to do this, especially in this passage where it's obvious that Paul is drawing an inference or conclusion from what he has already said, we have to take some time to go back and look and see why he is asking this particular question. So we have to do some contextual study and understand the framework for Romans 1. So in the next ten minutes, I'm going to take us through a run through Romans. Go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 6. This is really good for all of us. I think so often, especially in doctrinal churches, we have a tendency to get down with our microscope on each leaf in the tree. And we get down and we look at the cell and we take the cell apart into all of its components and then we, we get out our, our atomic microscope and then we start looking at each of those details that we lose sight of the whole forest. We, we, we lose sight of the ecosystem. We, we forget how all of these things relate to one another. So it really is good to stop and back up a little bit and get some perspective and look at the big picture and understand how these... Remember, these epistles, when they were originally written, they were read at one sitting. This is a letter. we got a letter from Paul today, folks. Let's read it. And they would start and they would read it. They would go from one one to the end and they would say, great, we're edified, let's go home. Now, we've advanced a long while, long, a, a, a little bit since then, and now it takes us maybe four or five years to get through Romans. But that's important too, because I think we learn a lot. We're going to get into the doctrine of progressive revelation Sunday morning in John. But I think that, that even though they, that is the disciples, understood A lot more than sometimes we give them credit for, I don't think they understood as much as we sometimes give them credit for. They were learning in the process, and they might not have understood all of the implications and ramifications of some of the things they said, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's still there. Now, we go to Romans 1, 16 and 17, and this is where Paul states the purpose for this epistle. He says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it, and that refers back to the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he is going to deal with the whole issue of salvation and how the the gospel relates to the righteousness of God. This is verse 17. For, gar in the Hebrew, which means because. So he's going to give the rationale in verse 17 for the principle he states in verse 16. For in it, that is, in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I have this up on the overhead. In it, the righteousness of God, that's dikaiosune. So all of a sudden now we know that's going to be an important word in our study of sanctification and spiritual life. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, that is saving faith, to faith, that is spiritual life faith. We advance at the moment of salvation, that's faith one, to the faith rest drill, which is the process of learning and applying doctrine in the second faith. As it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And this particular verse is a quote from the Hebrew in Habakkuk 2.4. And if we go back, and I don't want to get too bogged down in exegesis, but one of the interesting things, and it's also clear from the Greek, 
is that this is, I think, a, a mistranslation. So you have a phrase in the Greek, ek pisteos, ek plus the genitive of pistis, that is thrown in the English to the end of the sentence. But in the Greek, you have the righteous man. This is the man that is dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O-S. He is dikaios. He is dikaios. And then the next two words in the Greek are ek pisteos. E-K, preposition from, faith. P-I-S-T-E-O-S. That's a genitive form there. Now, what does that say? I think it should be translated, but the righteous man by faith. The one who is righteous by faith. That's how he got his righteousness was by faith. He didn't get his righteousness because of what he did. He got his righteousness because he trusted Christ as his Savior and that righteousness is imputed to him. And the imputation of righteousness is the theme of the first uh, three chapters, or almost five chapters, of Romans. His imputation of righteousness. Then in Romans 6, you start the, 6 through 8, it's the impartation of righteousness. So the impartation of righteousness is our experiential sanctification and the imputation of righteousness is our positional sanctification. So this should be translated, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. And there you get the breakdown. The one who is righteous by faith is phase one. The one who lives, that is, develops capacity for life through learning and assimilating doctrine into his soul, shall live. Remember, Jesus said, I did not, in John 10, 10, I did not come like a thief to destroy, but I came to give life, eternal life at the point of salvation, and that life abundantly, phase two life. This is the same concept here. The one who is righteous by faith, imputed righteousness at the point of salvation, shall live, future tense, dependent upon his assimilation of doctrine. So this sets forth the basic issue that will be developed in the Epistle of Romans. Now we have to go back to understanding the three key components or attributes of God's character. Righteousness, dikaiosune, justice, dikaiosune. See, the Greeks as well as the Hebrews use the same word for both righteousness and justice. The Hebrews use ascetic. The Greeks used dikaiosune, but they had to do with both aspects. Why? Because righteousness, one aspect is righteousness relates to a standard and justice relates to the application of that standard. So one word did double duty. So from this we conclude that righteousness is the standard of God's character. Justice is the application of the standard. And then love, John 3.16, is the motivator or initiator of the divine character because God so loved the world He gave. But God's righteousness and justice have to be satisfied before the perfect God can have a relationship with man. And so Paul is going to develop this and how this works out in human history on a point-by-point basis. Now the introduction to the epistle is given in 1.1-17. 1, 1 
first 17 verses provide the introduction where we first run into the term dikaiosune, and that is used again and again in the first five chapters, and then it is hardly used again. What happens, another interesting thing, just to give you a little framework of the kind of overview that very few people do, is that you don't see the mention of the Holy Spirit until Romans 8.1. Not only that, but you don't have an imperative verb until Romans 6. So the first five chapters are dealing, what ha- dealing with what has been done for us with no imperative, no mandate, no application, just what Christ has done for us. And then starting in Romans 6, where we have imperatives, that brings in our volitional responsibility in terms of our spiritual life. So the theme of righteousness is introduced in the first 17 verses. And then Paul is going to have to lay the case for why there is no righteousness in, verse, in the human race and from 118 to 320. From 118 to 320, Paul demonstrates that there is a universal lack of righteousness. First of all, he shows that the Gentiles are guilty. They have rejected God and rejected Christ in 118 down through 32. Then he is going to, uh, this is the Gentiles, then he is going to show that all of the Jews are under condemnation from 2.1 down through 3.8. The conclusion to that section is given in 3.9 through 20 where he concludes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's his conclusion. Well, if all are under condemnation, by condemnation that means they have... The term condemnation is the opposite of righteousness. They are condemned because they have failed to meet the standard of God's righteousness. How is man ever going to be saved? How is man ever going to achieve the righteousness of God. And this is the point that is covered in chapter 3, verses 21 down through 5, 21. The imputation of righteousness. From 3.21 down through 5.21, and that sets up the context for chapter 6. The basis for the imputation, the basis for the imputation is given in 3.21 through 26. The issue, faith alone in Christ alone, is given in 327 to 31. And then chapter 4 is an illustration from Abraham, that Abraham was justified by faith alone. It wasn't by circumcision. It wasn't by uh, works. It was by faith alone in the promises of God. And just as Abraham was saved by faith alone, So we are saved by faith alone. That's chapter 4. It's simply an illustration of the principle. And then in chapter 5, we get the implications of justification in the first 11 verses. That because we are justified, and justification itself comes from the Greek word dikaios, and what it means is that at the point of salvation, when Christ went to the cross, all the sins of humanity were imputed or credited to His account. That means what Peter says in 1 Peter, that all of our sins, He carried in His body on the cross all of our sins. They're imputed to Him. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then the perfect righteousness of Christ, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. 
His righteousness at the instant of salvation is credited to us so that we still possess a sin nature and we are minus R, but we now possess the perfect righteousness of Christ so that when the perfect righteousness of God looks at us, it sees that we have met His standard so that the justice of God can then bless us and imputes to us eternal life as a result of the fact that we possess the righteousness, not on the basis of anything we do, either in, for salvation or sanctification, because it's not based on th- this, it's all based on this. So experiential sanctification, how you grow, is never the basis for anything. It's always, every single blessing, whether it's logistical, life support blessing, or whether it is spiritual growth blessing or advanced blessing, it's always based on the fact that we possess the righteousness of Christ. That is the issue. And because we possess the righteousness of Christ, we are reconciled. This is the technical term, peace. There is peace between us and God. And then that sets the stage for Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and following, which is the conclusion which sets up the transition from the discussion of imputation of righteousness to impartation of righteousness. And we will start there, breaking that down and getting into the basis of Romans 6, 1 through 4, next Wednesday night. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You that we have such clarity in Your Word to help us understand not only how we are saved, but how we are to live and all the reasons You bless us that it's not based ever on who and what we are, but exclusively on who Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross that it is His righteousness and not our righteousness that is the issue. Help us to understand these things and have our thinking transformed that we may greater appreciate Your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.